Good morning. My name is Dave Worley. I'm part of the Redeemer family. Um, you're really welcome this morning. If this is maybe your first time or you maybe just over the last few weeks got connected into Redeemer, it's really great uh, to see you. I'm one of the senior leaders here along with Dave Armstrong, um, who I think is back from honeymoon today. Is that happening? Yeah, yeah. Great. It'd be great to have Dave back with us. Uh, along with uh, Ryan uh, and Steph and Zillian, Dan and Matt, we're the senior leaders here at Redeemer Central. Um, this morning we're continuing our series entitled A Colony of Christ. It's from the book of Philippians. So a colony is a, a group of one nationality or race living in a foreign place. Philippi was a colony of Rome. It was under the rule of a dominant Roman culture and emperor. Paul's encouragement to the believers in Philippi was not to conform to the prevailing culture, but instead to follow Jesus and to be a colony of Christ in that place. My plan this morning is to do a quick recap of our series so far. So if you're joining us for the first time, maybe this morning, get you up to speed. We'll then explore our passage for today, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. And then we're going to consider how we respond as a colony of Christ in 21st century Belfast. So let's remind ourselves of the background to this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. Paul was previously known as Saul uh, and had actively persecuted Christians before a life-changing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, after which he became a pioneer of the gospel. Uh, he went from murder- murdering Christians uh, to leading them. He was a missionary. He was traveling and preaching and writing to local churches in the time in support of them. He wanted to see them established and to see the gospel, the good news of King Jesus, extended to the ends of the earth. Paul at this time is in prison, and this is where he's writing uh, his letter. He's imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. As he tells us in the, in, in the first chapter, I am in chains for Christ. He's writing to the local church to thank them for their partnership together. He's thanking them for the financial support that they've given to him uh, whilst he's been a prisoner. And encouraging them that he's, he's always praying for them. He's always giving thanks for them. So we can see from the, the, what we've read so far in, in Philippians or over the last few weeks, Paul's affection for the church. It's so clear. As I mentioned, Philippi is a Roman, colopi, is a Roman, a Roman colony. Uh, an extension of Roman culture and civilization. It's a significant challenge for the Philippian church to live in a way that reflects the Christian faith, you know, serving King Jesus, instead of living under the rule of Caesar, the Roman emperor. Paul's call to the church through this letter is captured in the title of our series. He wants for them to be a colony of Christ, obedient to God instead of a colony of Rome with allegiance to Caesar. Paul is writing at a time of uncertainty for himself, He's awaiting judgment in prison and does not know whether he will be freed and live or be sentenced to death. He is living life in the reality of death, as Steph so helpfully put it in her talk a few weeks ago. Despite his circumstances, Paul is confident in his belief that whether he lives or dies, the gospel of Jesus will remain central in all things. Paul has this ability to communicate theological truths while speaking of the love of God. 
With Paul, it's not truth or love. It's truth in love. And he makes a call to the church for them to seek unity and holiness and also to live out uh, of a place of love and wisdom. Themes which Ryan spoke about uh, a few weeks ago. The verses that we're going to uh, look at this morning, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, are a call to respond to the the preceding 11 verses of this chapter. Matt led us through this last week, and I want to remind us of some of the key points from that. In verses 1 to 4, Paul calls the church to consider the impact of God's love on their lives. They were to have the mind of Christ and be united in the love that flows from that. Out of humility, they were to consider each other's needs above their own. As Matt said, they were not to think less of themselves, but to think about themselves less. Paul's rallying call was for the church to adopt the attitude and posture of a servant, which was so perfectly displayed by Jesus in his response to the Father. In verses 5 to 11, we have a text that is referred to by theologians as the, the Christ poem or the Christ hymn. The verses communicate the truth of the gospel story and also the beauty of it, God's redemptive work through Jesus. We can think of Paul here as being both a theologian and a poet. He weaves together the truth about God the Redeemer and how he is revealed in Jesus. Paul tells us about God who left the glory of heaven and came to earth in order to restore and redeem humankind Jesus had today. He didn't want today, but in the ultimate act of humility and obedience to the Father, Jesus took on death and sin and died for us. But it wasn't finished at that. The poem ends in celebration because Jesus was raised to life and restored to the Father in heaven. When I, when I read and when I think about the redemption story, uh, I feel the emotion of the father and the son and the separation there. It moves me, it breaks me, and I felt this afresh this week. I think there's a familiarity that comes with the gospel if you've been around church for a while. You know, when we talk about the redemption story, when we talk about the death of Jesus, it kind of rolls off your tongue. But if I've sat with this this week, this is really, it has set, it has sat heavy with me. And I'm faced with the question is how I should respond to what Jesus has done for me. This is also Paul's challenge to the church in Philippi, uh, as we will discover as we go on this morning. At the time when Paul wrote, Christians were faced with the challenge of living differently to the the culture around them. For the Philippians, they lived in a place ruled by Rome. Rome painted itself as a a type of saviour to the masses, but was known uh, for its totalitarian regime. It used crucifixion as a horrible and painful death, thereby showing the ultimate display of power and suppression of the people. God, however, took this and turned it on its head. Rome operated with power and control. The gospel of Jesus called for people to live out of love for God and for others. Our text today, as I said earlier, is chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. It's Paul's urge to the church in Philippi to respond to the Christ poem. What I'm going to do is ask us to read it together. Helps us just engage with what's happening. Um, So it's going to come up on screen, and we're going to read it 
Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul starts in verse 12 then with therefore. This makes reference to the understanding gained from the Christ poem. Paul tells the people of Philippi how this understanding of who God is should affect their lives. The passage speaks to the church in Philippi, but also speaks to us today. Paul commends his dear friends for their obedience. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul shows that this local church has submitted to the teachings and the ways of Christ, both when Paul was, had been there, but now in his absence. On that point, yeah. obedience is, is something people we can be fearful of because we associate it with perhaps like a lack of freedom. Submission to something or someone and a resulting loss of pleasure or autonomy. However, Paul is saying that obedience is a clear sign of health in the local church. Obedience to the scriptures and obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Some people see Christianity as a set of rules that suppress us, stop us from being fully human and enjoying life. N.T. Wright, the former bishop of Durham, calls this the classic lie of our time. He advocates that biblical teachings are direction for genuine humanness, God's original intention for humankind since creation. Think about it on a very basic level. If we don't have rules, chaos would prevail. The highway code and the laws governing the traffic on our roads largely protect us uh, from absolute pandemonium. I don't know if you can tell from this picture. Uh, it was taken from uh, a holiday that Cash and I had a number of years ago in Sicily. And that's us driving along. And there are five lanes of traffic. The, the road is marked out for two. Uh, three were created somehow. And I think we are sitting in the second lane and we're turning left. But actually the car in the fifth lane over here actually then began to come around here. The cut straight across us. Absolute nonsense. Absolute chaos. But we got there. Similar to that, we can think about uh, like the Human Rights Act. So it ensures that we have in law uh, a place to protect people regarding such things as individual liberty, the expression of thought and religion or belief, the right to education and religious expression, the right to a fair trial. These are good things in principle. So God has lots to say on how we should live. He calls us to obedience concerning our heart attitudes and our, and our inner thought worlds. 
He has stuff to say about our relationships with others, about how we do business, how we look after the marginalized in our communities, what we do with our money. We should not see these teachings as restrictive, but as ways to live as followers of Christ. It's important to remember that God's grace saturates all of this. So in our shortcomings and failings, he remains forever, the father waiting for the return of his children to him. Paul then gives a clear command to the church in Philippi. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what I'd like to spend a few minutes on this morning. It's the thing that has struck me most as I've prepared during the week. Paul is saying that the church in Philippi needs to work out what it is to live with the mind of Christ. Like the Philippians, uh, as believers in Christ, we need to work out what it looks like to live with the mind of Christ now, here in Belfast in 2018. So I want to just break down this, this phrase into three parts. Continue. Paul uses the, the, the present progressive tense when he says continue, and it means that you don't stop. It's ongoing. A simple metaphor here might be the example of me becoming a husband to Karis. On our wedding day, I became her husband. I am her husband in this moment, and I will continue to be her husband. And so it is with faith. There is a time after, sorry, there's a time often as a part of a process that we begin to follow Christ. We are believers and we continue to be believers. As I was thinking about this idea of continuing, I was reminded of the phrase adopted by Eugene Peterson, who sadly died this week. He often talked about the life of the believer as a long obedience in the same direction. And I think this phrase captures really well the essence of what it means to continue. Secondly then is to work out. Notice that it is to work out, not to work for. Let me say that again, it's to work out, not to work for. Work means work. It involves action on our part. There's an intensity to it, meaning that you go at it with, with energy, you pursue it, and you don't stop. So you think of an athlete training for the Olympics. They're giving their blood and their sweat and their tears in order to push themselves through qualifications and hopefully towards winning a medal. As well as an intensity element, there's a maturing element to it, requiring the person to grow, to discern, to understand, to practice the ways of Jesus. Think of how you might do that in other areas of your life, maybe in work, where you need to be aware of and educate yourselves about developments in practice, keeping up to date with new research and ways of working, thinking about Ryan as an architect, building regulations, thinking about the solicitors and lawyers in the room, all the different changes that happen in that area of practice. Sometimes it's helpful to look back on the year that has passed and consider if you have grown and developed in your Christian life. That's part of my invitation to you today. Look back, reflect. What's been areas of growth for you in this past year in your walk with Jesus? My invitation is for you to do that and then to do that and bring it to here to Redeemer as part of community. 
The idea of working out your salvation is a recurring theme in Paul's letters in the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, he says, we are created for good works. And James 2, 36, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The scriptures give us the framework for how to live with the mind of Christ. It cannot be directed by other things because we then run the risk of defining a faith that works for me and for my ends. I need to remember, it's not about me, it's about God. It is Paul's wish that the Christians in Philippi would develop their minds so that they can work out their salvation in accordance with what is wise and what is good in God's view. And then Thursday, the, uh, the your salvation part of this phrase. What Paul is getting at here is the all-encompassing nature of salvation, this gift from God. Salvation can be incorrectly reduced to this golden ticket. Avoid hell, achieve heaven, win. But Paul is categorically saying no to this reductionist idea. He's saying that Salvation is more dynamic and more panoramic in its scope than that. You are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. It's accomplished, yet it's living and breathing. And it's linked to God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and all that is in between. Paul goes on to say that the Believers are to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And there are a couple of features in this phrase, fear and trembling, that I think are are worth noting. We can understand fear as basically straightforward fear as we approach God. Fear may be unnecessarily associated with the negative, but actually a degree of fear is healthy and necessary in life. For example, as we approach a fire, we sense the heat and we will withdraw without being burned. The opposite is also true when we don't have a sense of fear in a situation. Recently, I bought a new kitchen knife, and I didn't fully appreciate how sharp it was until I sliced through the palm of my hand and spent the night in the emergency department waiting to get stitched up. A healthy fear has now been reinstated. So fear of the Lord can be, the best, can be best understood as a well-placed, a well-placed fear based in love. We know ultimately that God is good and loving, but we also know that we are not God and he is not us. Fear and love are not mutually exclusive. You can live in the love of the Father and approach him in fear. N.T. Wright uses the phrase utter seriousness to more fully understand the phrase fear and trembling. So he said, continue to work out your salvation in utter seriousness. He's saying that we must give our entire selves, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in our response to God. We must do so because it matters, because it is not a trivial matter. In all circumstances, whether in periods of joy or suffering, we are to face them in as honest a way as we can muster. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi that they should work out how to do life and respond to whatever happens and to do this from a place of wisdom 
and maturity and fear of the Lord. Paul's instruction to the church in Philippi also speaks to us today. We will all face desperate situations at some point in our lives. Paul instructs and invites us to place ourselves in God and in faith to live out a response to those circumstances. Like Paul, we at Redeemer see the local church as having a vital part to play in supporting each other in these times. And that's our hope, that we would be known as a place of safety and a place of support. Paul tells the church in Philippi to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in verse 13, he tells them how they are equipped to do this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Can we push on just a few slides? I think there's maybe one for that one, verse 13. Here he is talking about the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in his people, who aids them in their lives as Christ-minded people. Paul reminds them that they cannot go through life on their own. They have the very presence of God in them by the Holy Spirit to equip them to face all circumstances. The Holy Spirit remains the energy that we need to live with the mind of Christ. Just as the presence of God came to the people of Israel in the Ark of the Covenant, then to the temple, and then to dwell in each of us following Pentecost, he remains the source and the power by which we can live with the mind of Christ. We are not on our own. Paul goes on in verses 14 to 18 to give instruction and examples of what it looks like for the church in Philippi to continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He tells them to do everything without grumbling or arguing. The Philippian church would have known that Paul was reminding them of the complaining people of Israel when they were freed from Egypt uh, and slavery. And he goes back and refers to Exodus and Deuteronomy at this time. The people grumbled and quarreled. They complained to Moses that their freedom didn't look exactly as they had hoped. And they may have been better off if they remained slaves in Egypt. Paul is telling the Philippians and us to have a different mind, that of Christ. He reminds them that their attitude Their thinking, their behaviors should tell a different story to the world, one that reflects the gospel. Consider this for yourself. Are you a grumbling person? Is your attitude one of pessimism? Or have you set your mind and your heart on God and the hope that we have in him? N.T. Wright brilliantly describes how Paul tells the church in Philippi that there is a a way to live as genuine humans in the world. And this way is worked out by adopting the mind of Christ the Messiah. By adopting this mind and continuing to work out your salvation, the people may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of God. Warped and crooked generation sounds a bit harsh, 
but right then goes on to say that um, it's too simplistic to think of these terms as words that we attribute to people or behaviors. Um, if we do this, they simply become terms of abuse for others. Instead, Paul attributes quite a technical meaning to these phrases in terms of how we are to be genuinely human. When we deviate or fall away from God's intention for us as humans, Paul would then say, this is, this is warped, this is crooked. We know from historical records of the time that the church saw significant growth in the first three centuries. This was largely attributed to the actions of those early believers living like lights in the darkness. Their actions of kindness, genuineness, and grace were in such contrast to that of the Roman Empire that people came to faith in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that often the story of how people come to faith, how they get connected in the church when they're offered uh, kindness, a genuine action, a genuine love, something full of grace. As we work out our salvation in Belfast in 2018, our hearts and minds will be changed. We will develop the mind of Christ and we will live like lights in the darkness for others to see. As we finish, I want to draw our thoughts together from this morning. We've recapped the overall themes and context of Philippians. We've re revisited some of what Ryan, Steph, and Matt have shared with us. We've identified how Paul has commended the Philippian church for their obedience and for his call for them to continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us now to think for ourselves as Redeemer Central in Belfast in 2018, the, Paul, or the call that came from Paul to the church in Philippi is the same call that comes to us. As you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. I'll ask the band to come and join us. As they do so, I'll ask you to consider a few questions. It should come up on the screen behind me. <clears throat> so in light of what we heard, we've heard in the last four weeks about this letter of Paul to the church in Philippi, and in light of this phrase that we've thought about this morning, <clears throat> about continuing to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, take the moments in silence uh, at your tables and think about these questions. Are there areas in my life that I need to be obedient to Christ in? Do I need to repent of any sin towards God or others? What do I need to do to better understand what it is to have the mind of Christ? How am I seeking unity and holiness? How am I growing in love and wisdom? I can't do this alone. Who do I need to speak to 
and what do I need to do?